Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 177th videocast, 167th podcast for the week ending March 9th, 2023. A lot of great stuff to cover today. Uh, quick update. We haven't talked about Mimi and Annabelle for some time. Uh, Annabelle started, uh, actually both Mimi and Annabelle started water polo. Yes, swimming is their full-time job. Water polo is their hobby, but, uh, Annabelle had her first game this weekend in, uh, for, and she's playing for Greenwich. And uh, I think they're going to be going out to San Diego next month for some type of meet. So there she is chasing after the ball and looking deadly serious on the bench. So I thought that was fun to share. And uh, Mimi's got the 500 tonight. We're going out to UConn uh, for some serious championship. Uh, and, and they'll both be swimming the 500 free tonight and then the rest of their strokes over the weekend. So we're recording this a little bit earlier. Uh, that's me going into the Fox News building this week uh, to go on the Claim and Countdown with Cheryl Cassoni. You can see News Corp right there on 6th Avenue. Pretty cool. Thought I'd share that. Uh, and the first one we're going to do quickly on the media. We've got a lot of uh, Ask Me Anything questions. And by the way, starting next week, we're going to be able to cover a lot of um, or at least some new companies because the value of these video casts is evident by the fact that two of the Ask Me Anything questions in the last three weeks have been companies that we put on new uh, for client positions. So uh, we're putting to, to work about $9 million of new money this week when that's all done. We're going to be able to talk about um, uh, some of the newer positions and uh, two of which uh, you guys already reverse engineered. So congratulations on that. But what I want to first do is uh, go to this Yahoo clip. First off, I want to thank uh, Rochelle Akufo and Pamela, uh, Pamela Granda for having me on Yahoo Finance on Monday. And the reason I want to cover this, we're going to go right to the clip, is this is my overview on the U.S. markets. We're going to get into China at the end of the call. Someone sent in a good uh, Ask Me Anything question. But let's get right down to the overview real quickly. And here we go. Coming in like a lion, investors hoping for March's traditional trend to strength may be watching the Friday jobs report for a boost for that thesis, or to temper expectations perhaps. Joining us with a view on fundamentals, Thomas Hayes, Chairman and Managing Member at Great Hill Capital. Always good to see you, Thomas. We know this Likewise. has already been a very roller coaster year <laughs> because obviously they were off to the stocks off to the races in January, disappointed in February. Now March, really sort of circling the drain here, figuring out what's going to happen, especially with this big jobs data that's coming out. What are some of the, the market catalysts that you're going to be honing in on for March? Well, there's a lot of pessimism coming in. We just went through the normal February week seasonality, Rochelle, and great to be with you, by the way. But there are three key myths out there right now that are keeping people out of stocks, and I think at the exactly, at exactly wrong time. Uh, first and foremost is stocks don't go up during tightening cycles, a.k.a. don't fight the Fed. How many times have we heard that? But if you look back over the last four tightening cycles since 1994, the stock market is up on average 7.8% during the tightening period. And another myth within that is that tech can outperform. But if you look at the data, tech and REITs are actually two of the top performers during those periods. The second myth that's been out there is that the stock market must go down 
when earnings are coming down. And uh, history actually doesn't support that. Since 1930, in years where earnings are up year on year, the S&P does about 10.2%, including dividends. And in years that earnings are down year on year, the S&P does 9.8%. So the key is, is not timing the market, it's time in the market. And the final myth, and this is the big one, Rochelle, I'm sure you're hearing it all the time, you can't be in stocks with super high inflation. However, in periods of rising inflation, the S&P goes up on average 5.5%, so not so great. But in periods of falling inflation, the equity indices go up on average 14.7%. And I don't know about you, I don't need a magnifying glass to see since last July, inflation has come down every single month. We're in a falling inflation environment. And Thomas, it's hard. I mean, these are some very well-established myths. And when you think about the fact that this really isn't your typical period when you think of a recession. This is a, a Fed-led recession. And so people trying to sort of balance what they know from history with their usual market expectations. So what should people be doing differently from the crowd? Where do you see the opportunities? Well, I think they should be like George Costanza from Seinfeld and do the opposite. If you remember, everything started working well for when he went against his normal instinct. And what's the instinct? What is the crowd doing right now? Well, we see from data that equity flows out of equity funds have been the highest in the last few weeks since spring of 2020. And to jog everyone's memory, spring of 2020, we had that violent rally off the lows, the March 2020 lows. We rallied about 40%. And all of the commentators were coming out and saying, we're going to go back and uh, test the lows. We don't have a vaccine. We're going to break the lows. And what happened? We went up another 50% instead. And I think we're seeing the exact same situation right now is that everyone is saying, oh, we got to go test the lows. You have negative earnings. You have an inverted yield curve, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the maximum pain right now is to push higher against a wall of worry. Just like we crashed 25% last year in anticipation of the slowdown this year, we're going to start to rally this year in anticipation of the earnings recovery next year. The second thing is everyone is buying VIX call options at a record pace. So they're buying insurance for a house that already burned down last year. Bad move. And finally, uh, if you look at the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey, managers are the most overweight bonds relative to stocks than they were since the pandemic lows in March of 2020 and the great financial crisis lows in March of 2009. Those were times to buy equities, not bonds. And I don't know about you, Rochelle, but one thing is clear, stock market does not top when people are overweight bonds. It tops when everyone's overweight equities and you run out of marginal buyers. And we're nowhere near that right now with cash levels and funds coming out of equities. So we think there's a lot of opportunity in the market to buy high quality companies that are on sale. I mean, it's tough because, you know, a lot of people looking for the, the safety that they're used to in bonds. Do you think perhaps longer term there is a time to get in there or have people already missed the boat? Well, in terms of the equity market, I think on a company by company basis, you see high quality businesses on sale. I also think that, you know, people are very, very pessimistic about the recovery. And I think what they're underestimating, everyone keeps looking for the black swan, what's going to take this thing down, but actually what's going to take this up is that the second largest economy in the world in China uh, is reopening after three years of stop and start and major lockdowns, basically being offline for three years. Somehow the world economy managed to forge forward without them because they didn't have the proper vaccines, et cetera. And since they've opened, and it's only been eight weeks, if you look at the composite PMI just last week alone, 
being at higher than pre-pandemic levels of activity, that's going to, you know, that rising tide is going to lift Europe. It's going to lift S&P earnings. And it's really just getting started. Even today, we saw box office tickets for the movie theater up 12% year on year in China. So uh, I think that uh, that is uh, kind of a, a positive catalyst for the global economy that very few people are putting weight on because it's been offline for so long that you stop accounting for the positive benefits of that contribution. And a lot of people have been waiting for this China reopening story to really pick up pace. Um, but as you're mentioning, as you heard there, we heard from ECB chief Christine Lagarde saying, you know, inflation is still this global monster. People wondering, though, is it going to be a double edged sword with the China reopening? Is it going to be fueling inflation while it's also helping with demand? Well, it's interesting. Everyone looks to Saudi Arabia and looks to Russia for oil production. But while China has been shut down, what we see is that U.S. rig count uh, has been creeping up back to near pre-pandemic levels. So uh, while their demand was down a little bit and they built up supplies buying a lot of oil from Russia and Russia's production was was still cranking uh, even while they were shut down, uh, they, they were buying at a discount. They built up a lot of storage, just like Europe built up the natural gas storage. But now you've got all this U.S. production getting back to pre-pandemic levels within months. And I think that's going to contribute and that's that's going to offset moving forward. So uh, so we're just looking for high quality businesses that are marked down. You can still buy companies like Amazon, 55% off of its recent highs. Uh, one that we're looking at right now, Rochelle, is uh, a 3M. It's kind of this boring, sleepy company, industrial transportation, healthcare consumer. But it's trading at 11 and a half times forward earnings, and that compares to its historic multiple of 17 times. Even its great financial crisis low multiple in March of 2009 was 14 times. So why is it trading so low? Um, it has a legal overhang, uh, two lawsuits, one of which the Department of Defense uh, for earplugs came out last week and said 90% of people who use those earplugs actually had zero hearing impairment. Uh, so that's a positive catalyst to help alleviate some of the litigation overhang. They'll pay the fine, they'll, right. they'll come to some settlement and then the stock can move from there. They're also doing two tax-free spinoffs to unlock value to shareholders. Uh, so we think that's gonna be a positive one moving forward. You say 3M is a boring pick. I think investors could welcome a bit of boring after the year they've had so far. A big thank you as always, Thomas Hayes, Chairman and Managing Member at Great Hill Capital. Have a good Monday. And we're back. So that's kind of the U.S. overview. Then there's been a lot about the Fed and about inflation this week. And rather than repeat what I told Cheryl, we're going to go right to the clip. First off, I want to thank Catherine Myers, Cheryl Cassoni, and Liz Clayman for having me on Fox Business, The Clayman Countdown, to talk Fed and inflation. I'm sure it's on a lot of your minds. So here we go. Let's go right to our floor show, find out how investors should trade all of this action. Joining me now are traders Scott Shelley and Tom Hayes. And Tom, I'm going to start with you on this one because Powell once again reaffirming that this is the path they're on. But I have to say here, what I found interesting in his comments is today he said, look, but this is data dependent. We're going to get more data before the March decision. So I think he kind of clarified today in his comments, this isn't set in stone yep. that we're jumping a half a point at the March meeting. That's right. Well, Powell came out strong. He said faster, higher, longer, and the algos went crazy yesterday. We saw that. Uh, he also said that services inflation is sticky, so that was also bad news. And then the dot plot is 
you know, basically implied the dot plot's going to go up from 540 terminal to 565 in that range. That's the bad news. The good news to, to your point, Cheryl, is that all the inflation, and he acknowledged housing, wages, et cetera, goods are coming down. The only one that's sticky is services. He did say we're going to stay data dependent, and he did leave on the table the possibility of a soft landing. So uh, the market took it hard, but they're going into a blackout period. Uh, I, yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I do think that it was because of the language that he used yesterday, Scott. And, and I want to stay on this really quick as well, because so many investments in commodities, which you know very well, are interest rate dependent. We've seen a big change in oil. I think part of that was uh, some other comments that came out today, but we really are seeing a little bit of a trade in, in oil as well. And then also, too, I think, you know, the economy with the China reopening story, that pressure coming from China is another story. And he was asked about that today. Well, you know, I, I think that the China reopening story obviously is there, but I don't think it's as strong as people think it's going to be. I mean, they're still limping along as well. And I think that uh, what I heard from the Fed today and yesterday, for Jerome Powell today and yesterday, was a lot of what he's been saying already up until now. Was he maybe a little bit more hawkish? I don't know. At the most, maybe. But I think that the market has been Pollyannish, whistling by the graveyard, ignoring what he's had to say. And maybe it's because he was in front of the Senate and the House this week, you know, these last two days. They've stood up or sat up and taken notice. But, yeah, to say you're data dependent, big deal. I mean, I don't think what he said was anything shocking. I was shocked more about how the market hadn't reacted to it for the last six weeks. And to Elizabeth Warren's point, I would have also liked to see, and I did this on my show today, what would I have liked to heard the Fed say or Jerome Powell push back on? You know what? I don't need to be raising rates like I'm raising right now if you keep spending like you're spending. You know what? He's got a 2% inflation target that he's trying to get the CPI down to, right? We all know about that. We've talked about it ad nauseum. But I tell you what, how about this? How about the, the Congress? They can't spend any money until we get down to 2%. How about that? I mean, I think that would go a long way. Number two is, you know what? If we can get that oil price down, number one, it's going to help inflation in our country immensely. But number two, it's going to hurt the people that are now making a lot of money, i.e. Russia, because of high oil prices. It does a, It's a double whammy in our favor. So I, I would have a lot to say there. Obviously, you can tell I'm kind of worked up about it. But I thought the market finally reacted like I thought it should do today and yesterday to something that's been going on for six weeks. Yeah, and Tom, I think the other good point, and I'm glad he brought that up, is that when we talk about inflation, and really that is the name of the game, and that's the entire story here for Jerome Powell. I mean, everything else just seems to be off the table. But he's not going to say that. He can't. But if you think that is the culprit, and that is stimulus spending out of Washington, which has not been reined in. We're going to get the president's budget tomorrow. It's you know going to have a rough go in the House, obviously, and probably will not get passed because uh, Republicans control the House. But... You know, that spending is where we're seeing that services inflation come from and come in. Um, also, too, the, the small businesses that are having to pay more, that's a drag on small businesses when they're having to pay more in wages. And we'll get the jobs report Friday, and we, we should get more you know, data from that level as well. Yeah. Well, I think he's got to keep long-term inflation expectations pinned. I think the idea of 2% anytime soon is a little bit aggressive. You know, uh, Volcker had a completely <laughs> different set of circumstances. He had debt to GDP at 33% when he was hiking so aggressively. Uh, we've, we've been at 120% debt to GDP. The last time we were here was 1948. 
And what the Fed did during that period to bring down debt to GDP is they actually let inflation run hot for five years. They let it run three to five percent, and we dropped mm. debt to GDP. They inflated it away down to 60 percent within a handful of years. And I think that's the playbook. He's got to continue to talk hawkish, pin the long-term expectations, but you got to let the economy run a little hot so we can bring that debt to GDP down a little bit lower. And then, of course, like Scott says, we got to get them to stop spending, but good luck with that. I know. That's, but that, <laughs> not that I don't agree with you, Scott, but I say good luck with that as well. That is very true. Final thoughts to you, Scott, on, on the energy space. Look, I mean, I know it's only March, but we're already looking ahead to the summer driving season. Look, a lot of people that use heating oil over the winter, they were hit with high bills. Electricity and the CPI report, another big jump uh, that we saw. I mean, that inflation side is not easing. And then here we go, coming into the summer months when gasoline's probably going to be an, a, a headline we're going to have to talk about by May. Yeah, well, you're right, because that's part of the CPI that also really helps bring the CPI down, right? Oil coming from 90 down to 70 or even 65. And if it does rally back up, that's going to be another thorn in the side of the Fed. That's going to be something else that they're going to have to worry about. And I also would like to see, give me a CPI number that shows how much money people have in their pockets, right? Because I am sick and tired of hearing about how the CPI has come down because used cars have dropped, you know, 20% in price. How many times do you buy a used car? or how much your house has come down in price. Well, it doesn't affect your day-to-day -day spending per se. It might do on the way up, but not really on the way down. I wanna know how much money is still in the consumer's pockets because the things that they touch every day or every other week, like food and like fuel, those are the ones that really hurt the most. And just go to the grocery store and look me in the eye when you come out and say, I only had to pay 6.4% more this time this year than I did last year because I don't think that's possible. It's interesting because Powell, you know, reaffirmed again and again about how it's core inflation that he looks at. I don't, I actually don't buy that. I think that the headline inflation numbers are just as impactful when they're making their decisions as the core numbers are. Uh, but that's just my opinion because I'm not in the meeting, but we'll see what happens uh, when they do, of course, release that decision. Tom Hayes, Scott Shalady, it was great to see you both. Thanks, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. And we're back. Uh, so that gives you kind of the general overview. Also, we covered Charles Payne last week. I was on uh, Thursday, but I did want to thank uh, Kayla Aristivo and Charles Payne for having me on that. We did go through that clip last week. Uh, we recorded right after uh, I left the studio. So I uh, also want to thank Anuran Mitra for including me in his article on Seeking Alpha. And then I want to thank Sruthi Shankar Bansari Kamdar and Shristi Achar for including me in their article on Reuters. Now we're going to go through a little bit of sector overview here. The bullish percent, uh, all that means is percentage of stocks on a point and figure buy signal. We don't use point and figure here, but we do use those buy signals because it's, it's indicative of the sector health and the sector uh, supply and demand. So if you look here, we have consumer discretionary. Remember, no one wanted it in December. I said uh, this was going to be a group as well as um, uh, communication services. These were the two most hated. They've had the biggest rallies. Now they're doing the, the normal consolidation in February and I think ready to take the next thing. And as you look here down to bullish percent, you can see when it gets down. Uh, here's a good example where you put the bottom in and then you do a little consolidation before you move up higher 
et cetera, et cetera. I mean, 2022 is not the best year to, let me just see here, give you some more examples. If we can go back a few years, this will be more helpful. Okay, so here we go. Um, you can see here, when you get these type of extreme readings, how you get the bottoms bottoms in, extreme reading. Now, this was just a bear market in 2022. We put that bottom in in December. And now it looks like, you know, we had the rally, uh, took out the downtrend, retesting, consolidating, and ready to get back higher. So um, let's just see if we can get back to that. Pretty tricky move there to get that done. All right. Now, let's look at some of the other sectors. Going back here, uh, bullish percent. Uh, this is tech again. You had that low at the end of the year that we talked about. It's time to buy tech. Um, then you had the rally up. Best performer of the year. Remember, it's communication services, tech and consumer discretionary that no one wanted. And then we also talked about REITs, which we'll talk a little bit about. Uh, you had the big rally consolidation in February. Now we're getting into seasonal strength. We had a little bit of hiccups with Powell this week, but we covered that on Cheryl. Uh, we, we think that's uh, more overblown than it needs to be. He, he will be data dependent. And we got some data this mo morning with the jobless claims came in worse than expected. Bad news is good news now. Uh, and Powell acknowledged that the good news of January may be a seasonal aberration due to the warm weather. So we're going to find out tomorrow is a very important jobs report and certainly on Tuesday. But the market's gone straight to pricing 50 basis points. And I think that might be pre premature. Uh, we're still in the camp 25-25, but uh, the market is now pricing 50. It's at 76% chance, I believe. Uh, which just shows kind of the strength of the economy and that it can take it. But uh, we'll see how those inflation numbers come in and how the jobs numbers come in tomorrow before we jump to conclusions that the next is 50, which I think is much lower probability than 75. I'd put it at a 25, but um, uh, we'll see. So materials, everyone wanted at the end of the year. They've done nothing. Same thing with energy. Everyone wanted at the end of the year. It's done nothing. Actually, the worst performer. Uh, Staples is interesting it's just been downtrending they got overvalued in december uh it's getting oversold but not quite there yet you could potentially look at name this one's really interesting healthcare um you see it among certainly some of the insurers like centene and uh, uh but it's particularly among the medical devices and i like this setup because um, you had this monster rally, then a consolidation, and now you're kind of getting to oversold. And usually if it's a consolidation, you don't get that far oversold. So I think some of the companies like the J&Js of the world, the Centines, the uh, insurers, and the medical devices, Baxter, etc., can be opportunities moving forward. They've really gotten sold off aggressively here, and, uh, and I think that's an opportunity when we look at risk-reward. Uh, utilities, same thing. These are interest rate sensitive. I think that this is overhyped and overblown this week. He walked it back a little bit the second day of testimony, but we're going to talk about why his his hands are going to be tied very, very soon. 
and what the Democrats are setting up in terms of how they're going to frame him and his policies if he doesn't relent in short order. Um, financials are coming down. We've been agnostic on that. So utilities, you could get selective there, but they're ne never, you know, incredible opportunities. Like they're punts for 15 or 20 percent trades, and there are plenty of those setting up. Let's take a look at the general health uh, with some of our indicators here. So you had this kind of heart attack in December, like you had in the pandemic lows, like you had in uh, 2018, the first time uh, Powell screwed up uh, with his autopilot statements, and you had these type of spikes during the Euro debt crisis in 2011. Um, and then what you get is after you get the heart attack, you get these little spike ups. And this is what I talked about in the context in Rochelle's video about the most selling out of equities since spring of 2020. Well, what happened? You had this heart attack here with the 10-day uh, equity put call ratio, just like we had in December, okay? And then you rallied uh, in the case of the pandemic because the crash was so much, 35%, you rallied 40% off a 30% low, and then you got this pullback consolidation, just like we're having now, well, look at the 10-day put call. What did it do after the heart attack? It collapsed and it rallied back up, just like what we're seeing right now at this consolidation. And if you remember at this consolidation, you had all, this, all the same cast of characters saying we were going to go back and test the lows, if not break the lows, because we had no vaccine and there was so much uh, uh, scarcity and multiples were too high because earnings went to zero. So multiples went high. And sure enough, what happened? We rallied another 50 plus percent over the next year. Uh, so uh, I think we're in a similar situation. We have all the exact same narratives. We rallied 18 and a half percent. We're pulling back. We're getting this spike up. Everyone's saying we're going back to test the lows. Multiples are too high, etc. The things we've covered over the last few weeks. And we think based on everyone running into bonds and cash that the maximum pain is going to be pushing higher. Not because we think earnings are going to go up overnight. Earnings are still coming down a little bit, although that's changing. We're going to talk about that in a second. Um, this will be maximum pain pushing higher. And uh, you still have now 249, 250 on 2014. And they're holding up the last four weeks. So uh, that puts us, if you back out uh, the last, the top four companies in the S&P weighting, uh, you get down to a multiple of like 14 times 2024, 16 times if you include them. Uh, and that's extremely, extremely low considering the demand in the economy. So just some of these others here, the uh, NASDAQ, again, this is what you see 2015 to 2016 before a multi-year rally, 2011, 2012. So it takes a little while. Look, guys, this took a year for this to work out in 2011. And you had the same stuff, the first rally, then a pullback consolidation and then a multi-year rally. Same thing here, first rally, consolidation, consolidation, and then, then uh, a rally beyond that. Uh, and then the same thing in 2020, rally, consolidation, and then just you know continue to rally higher. So these are standard patterns that you, you just become aware of over time. NASDAQ high-low, same type of thing. You get that spike and then a consolidation and then you keep going. Uh, and over and over and over. So uh, real estate's getting oversold here. We know that. Um, you know, the fear is that some of these uh, office owners are defaulting on their things. They're not defaulting. They're just handing it back. If they have no equity, the loan is only secured by the building. It's better that they hand it back. Why take a negative cash flow? Hand it back. 
work you know work with your other high quality products uh, um, uh, properties that are cash flowing and the other thing is even though you know not not the whole entire office is in at the same time but um, that um, even if not everyone's in the office at the same time they all have desks and they all come in they try to get everyone in one day a week at the same week so they're not going to be able to cut quite as much real estate space as you think now if you're in marginal areas in marginal buildings you're screwed it's the same as the malls if you're simon property you're going to be fine forever you've got apple and you've got lululemon if you're um if you're you know boston properties or vernado these are run you know uh Zuckerman and um, and Roth are two of the smartest guys. They made it through the great financial crisis. They're not going down. They have the highest quality properties in their respective markets. Uh, sh you know, and a lot of pain is actually priced in much more than probably going to happen. What I do expect with both of these high quality businesses is they will cut the dividends. So the market's afraid of that. That's going to happen. And once the dividends cut, then you're going to get a rally and you're trading at a huge discount to uh, intrinsic value of the offices, etc. Some will be converted over time to, to apartments, etc. But when you have the highest quality office buildings in the highest quality cities in the world, uh, sure, the vacancy rate might go from, uh, you might go from an occupancy rate of 91% to 89% or 88%, God forbid. Uh, but, you know, all that means is you shave the dividend, you give a couple buildings back to the lenders, and you're off to the races because in the next cycle, after you've built up the cash, you're buying at the bottom and you're back at the top again. You don't bet against these multi-billionaires who've been, who've been through every cycle under the sun, every credit cycle, every economic cycle. Uh, you bet at them against your own peril. But when you can buy them, you know, one or two, two or three times every two decades when you can buy them uh, down 50, 60%, uh, we think that's an opportunity. So um, we'll talk more about that next week on which names we're considering and uh, executing and that type of thing. Moving along, one of our favorites, the PMO buy all, got down to zero. That's where you want to see it. That's where you want to be a buyer or seller. Sometimes it takes a little while to create the, you know, to, to f make the full bottom. Maybe it's, it's back up to seven. Maybe it goes back down and test zero one more time. But, um, but the risk reward starts to favor. PMO um, crossover buy signals. This is for the Dow. Same thing. It's near the buy, not the sell. Uh, S&P 500 PMO crossover buy signals. Uh, down to 15%, down to 18%, it got as low as 10%. These are areas where you buy and, and you make a lot of money when you buy versus, versus selling and, uh, and puking in the hole with everyone else. So, um, you know, most of these are lined up, creating another op opportunity. NASDAQ, McClellan Oscillator, same thing. Uh, so look, we just dispassionately look at the data and probability weighted take, take shots at. Now, you can say, what if the jobs report is this or that? Look, those things are not within our control. All we can do is buy high-quality businesses when they're dramatically marked down, knowing that over time those cash flows are going to uh, continue to grow, and or if they've been temporarily impaired, why are they impaired, and how are they going to revert, and how quickly are they going to revert? And that's how you make doubles and triples, and you rinse and repeat. Um, VIX is coming down just like it does every heart attack cycle. You have the heart attack. You have the aftershocks, you get another bump up, and then you trend down over time until the next cycle. So uh, nothing nothing to see here, so to speak. 
Let's take a look at some of the sectors relative to the S&P. This is consumer discretionary. It started to rally off the December lows. We think this has a long way to go, that sector discretionary. <coughs> Healthcare, as I said, it came off the boil here. It may have some more pain to go, but I think on a selective basis, some of these names, particularly in medical devices, are starting to look very attractive. Um, utilities, again, came off the boil. Uh, these are more for trades. I wouldn't be long-term investing in utilities. They don't really generate what the kind of returns we need. Uh, staples, you've got to be very selective. This is a little elevated. Tech is starting to break out. Like you could actually draw this downtrend line, breakout. This is tech relative to the S&P. And again, remember, no one wanted to touch them, and now everyone is wanting them. Uh, XLI, and this you want to be cognizant, is also inclusive of semiconductors, which we were talking about in October. They've had a monster run. <clears throat> we have a new initiation there as well. Um, industrials, there's not a whole lot there. That Those have kind of run. Um, Financials, not for us. I mean, you know, if you forced us to buy something, eh, there's nothing we really want to do desperately right now. Energy, it's a little overdone here. Uh, I'd look at some of the natural gas names if I had to put work in, money to work, but I don't. Uh, and then communication services. Remember in December, we said this was one of the three. Well, it started to outperform. This is just the beginning. Uh, and you can just look at, so actually, why don't we do that? Um, and then biotech, you know, just like 2016 tightening cycle, it gets going, it curls back, and then eventually what happened here in terms of this is XBI2 uh, S&P, but the XBI itself um, made new highs again. So that's what we're expecting over the next two years as well. Bonds have underperformed. They're going to start to get bid, the long bonds. You're going to see that in the next couple of months. This is... Um, clear as day to me. Uh, and then um, China, the check back, we're going to cover a lot of that. But let's pull up. And then here's the REITs. They started to go consolidation. I think they're going to have a lot, lot more room to run. Uh, XLC top holdings. So communication services, top holdings. And there we go. <clears throat> you've got Meta, you've got Google, which I think is interesting. Uh, you got Disney and Charter, some of the cable companies that have been bashed for sure. Um, the one that uh, we really like in the tech space uh, is Amazon. And what was interesting about this chart, and we've talked about it um, multiple times, is you know buy it at 2018 prices. Well, here's 2018. And we said the AWS is tripled, the ad business is tripled, the communications, uh, the uh, e-commerce business is doubled, prime members U.S. from 100 million to 163 million. Oh, and by the way, operating cash flow up 50% over that time period. So, but it's sometimes easier with visual, okay? So if I offer you this, so this is revenues by business. So online and third-party seller services, uh, AWS is the aqua, subscription is the blue, and um, red is other, which is probably ads. Uh, so here's the business in 2018, right here. Here's the business today. 
So it was 200 billion and change. Now it's 500 billion and change as of the end of last year, and it's trading for the same price. Now you could say the multiple was too high in uh, 2018, and I'd say, okay, that's a reasonable argument. Um, but the fact of the matter is, uh, you're getting twice, more than twice the business for the same price. It's off 55% off of its highs. And anytime Amazon corrects to this level, uh, you, you want to be a buyer, not a seller. Uh, why is the stock down? Because they overexpanded during COVID. They're shutting those warehouses. They're shutting some of those quick stores. Uh, and they're getting back to their core business. And their core underlying business is doing quite well. Uh, and you'll see more and more of that with AWS as businesses want to save money, etc. More and more of their services are going to be used. And advertising, believe it or not, will come back. I know you can't believe that now, but both for Google uh, and for Meta and for Amazon. Uh, but this visual, I think, same price, double the business. That's kind of interesting to us. So uh, the secret to stock success so far in 2023, an unexpected $1 trillion liquidity boost by central banks. This is from MarketWatch. And also one of our readers sent it to me um, and listeners. But what's interesting about this, the bulk of this increase, so you see this big liquidity. So liquidity was getting sucked out and the market went to, to the uh, uh, down quite a bit in 2022. But now liquidity is coming back. But where is it coming? Well, according to King's analysis, that came from the People's Bank of China. Uh, which has bucked the trend of global monetary tightening and instead opted to directly inject liquidity into its banking system, accounting for the largest share of the $1 trillion figure. Even as central banks have told us they're going to be tightening, it turns out that on a global level, they've just added $1 trillion worth of liquidity over the past three months. So expect this to be continued led by China, and we'll talk about, well, if China's got so much liquidity and the recovery is going so well, why aren't the stocks going up? Why are they continuing to, to, uh, to retrace some of their gains? Uh, well, hold on tight. We'll get into that. Uh, okay, Jerome Powell says data will determine the size of the next rate increase. So he kind of backed off. This is from the Fed whisperer Nick Timoreos, so we always pay attention to that. Um, and he said after crashing the market on Tuesday, he came back on Wednesday and said, quote, I stress that no decision has been made on this. Um, uh, bu -bu 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 officials prepared to, uh, warranted by the totality of the data. So he could go faster, he could go slower. And the most important data coming up, well, t one, we got one today, which was the jobless claims was much higher than expected. The continuing claims were much higher than expected. And then tomorrow we'll see the uh, non-farm payrolls report, which is a which is an important one, and then the CPI next Tuesday on the 14th is also extremely important. The 10th, 11th, 12th, yeah, Tuesday. Um, so that's that. Next, Ford to increase production of six models in 2023. So that's positive. Uh, UBS China sees rapid co consumer rebound as UPS G UBS lifts GDP outlook. So the NDRC says it will take measures to boost consumption this year. This is from a few days ago. UBS lifts 2023 growth forecast to 5.4% from 4.9% on the reopening. So they're looking at all the data trackers that we're looking at. Here they show one anecdote of the box office being up 12% year on year. The other thing was Apple got upgraded to $199 price target because demand for the iPhone is picking up in China with the reopening. 
so more and more of this. So when you deal with the facts and not the noise, you'll get down to what you need to know. Here's what analysts are saying after China, China set its growth target at 5%. The market was all upset because they, they, they thought it was going to be 5.3 instead of 5. My guess is they'll come in at 5.5. 5. What they're doing is it's a new administration. Just like with a new company, you kitchen sink it, you set expectations very low, and then you crush expectations moving forward to build credibility. They're doing the exact same thing. JP Morgan says, Analysts there emphasize the target is usually determined well before the NPC meeting in December. The involvement between December and March usually will not affect the growth target. Perhaps only exception that no growth target was announced in 2020 after the COVID outbreak. Back in December, around 5% was clearly not a conservative growth target, and it shows the emphasis on growth stabilization and quality growth. So they set this before the company was even country was even reopened. Uh, they were over 5%. So they've kept this, they changed it, they added the word about 5% because I think they know they're going to absolutely blow the doors off of it. And so if you look at the composite PMIs that we covered last week, manufacturing and services, it blew the doors off and was much higher than pre-pandemic levels. So the underlying fundamentals of the business in terms of Alibaba continue to improve, the conditions continue to improve. So why aren't the stocks going up? And uh, we're getting right there. So uh, it's the same reason in October, by the way, if you want a hint. Um, but let's, let's go into the article of the week. So Barbarians of the Gate stock market and sentiment results. This week I watched the classic film Barbarians of the Gate for the first time. It stars James Garner of The Great Escape fame and Peter Rygert of Animal House fame. It chronicles the booming 1980s junk bond era when Michael Milken at Drexel Burnham was able to raise unlimited amounts of capital for leverage management buyouts and corporate takeovers. No company was safe if Milken was involved. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting John Burnham actually in 2012 when we were looking at a bunch of financial firms and uh, quite, quite a gentleman. But uh, that aside, uh, due to the excess cap, by the way, he said two things to me in 2012, which uh, I, I wish I'd taken much more seriously. Uh, he said, I'm trying to find a way to bet more money on Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. These two are one of a kind or two of a kind in a hundred years. And if I can find more way to put money behind them, I will do it. And that was 2012. And if he followed his own advice, uh, he's even a lot wealthier today than he was in 2012. And uh, I wish I'd followed his advice uh, in, in uh, much greater scale. But uh, certainly both of those have been multi, multi, multi baggers since uh, and to his credit. So he's been around the block and that was great advice. Now, due to the excess capital available, the leaked MBO management buyout for RJR Nabisco cigarettes and Oreos uh, by CEO F. Ross Johnson created an unnatural bidding war. The company had never traded above $71 a share in its history. And at the time management constructed the IBO, the stock was stuck in the 40s and it was just sitting there. Uh, sitting there and management thought it would be a cinch to take it out at a premium to its highest ever price by offering 75 so it's trading in the 40s he's like they're going to want 71 let's just offer 75 and keep all bidders away well they didn't count on what would happen next with henry henry kravis and a couple of, of forsman brothers etc uh came in and bid the sucker up uh to 25 billion dollars so when all is said and done the bidding war was won by Henry Kravis at $109 or 150% premium to where it had been trading month, just months earlier. 
Keep in mind these deals were debt financed by Michael Milken's high yield junk bonds. Much easier to spend money and pay expensive prices when it's someone else's money apparently. Uh, the result, be careful what you wish for because you might wind up getting it. And it turned out to be an abysmal failure for Kravis and the worst performing investment in his fund by the time he sold the assets at a loss years later. So why did it fail? The investment didn't work because they borrowed too much money at peak rates and overpaid, which impaired the business. So they bought it at the peak, at a peak price, at peak money, you know, at a very high money price. And the result, um, um, so they overpaid and that impaired the business. It just couldn't sustain that level of debt. Uh, you know, if they've taken it out at $75, it probably would have been a monster home run and management would have made a couple billion dollars and uh, and uh, if, if Kravis was involved and they'd worked together and Milken, they would have all made a lot of money, but they got greedy, egos got uh, the better of them and it was a disaster. So a great asset, I mean, Nabisco is still a major part of uh, Mondelez, the Oreos, great company, great asset, stood the test of time, just not in the right hands under the wrong capital structure. So bad capital structure, too many turns of debt, yielded mediocre results and a big loss to the fund when it was ultimately sold. Chairman Powell is doing the same thing to our country and it will not work. Uh, he, he, he will choke off growth, destroy jobs, and increase our debt load if he doesn't pause soon. And by soon, I mean one or two more 25 basis point hikes and that, that's it. Um, so how does this apply to today's stock market? On Tuesday, Chairman Powell sent the markets into a tailspin when he uttered the words faster, higher, longer. When speaking to the Senate about interest rates, what Powell neglects to acknowledge is you cannot continue to raise interest rates at the pace he has done when the debt to GDP ratio is 20%. When Volcker did it, debt to GDP was 33%, so he had the runway. Now here's some data from the Peterson Institute. Interest payments on the national debt rose significantly last year, and we just started tightening last year. Look at this huge jump from you know 350 billion to 475 billion dollars just in interest payments. Uh, projections of net interest costs have grown worse over the past year because they've raised more. Uh, Ten-year interest costs are expected to be 10.5 trillion dollars between now and 2033 versus uh, 8 trillion last year. So you know that's another 2 trillion dollars that's coming out of productive investment and going to service debt because he's put it, I mean, it would be like you, gosh, uh, what's the best example? I mean, it would basically be like saying, it would be like you getting a mortgage on your house and the banker comes back and says, uh, hey, we checked your credit. It's very good. You have a stable source of income. We're going to give you 5% uh, uh, interest rate on your mortgage. And you say, no, 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 no. Why would I take 5%? Can I have 8%? Can you make it 9%? I'd like to pay more so I have less money available to invest in the rest of my life. I'd rather pay it to you, my debtors, than put it in productive things like growing a business, buying more real estate, you know, buying whatever, you know, uh, investing in my family, doing vacations, investing in their education. No, I would rather raise the rate on myself. I'm going to pay you 9% instead of 5% uh, just so that um, I can pretend I'm going to bring down inflation and inflation is related to interest rates explicitly, which in this case, it's not. Uh, what what the the inflation is related to is is his impatience to wait for the effect of his actions abrupt and aggressive actions over the last 12 months to actually settle into the economy 
So we're going to get into this. So spending on interest will exceed spending on a number of categories over the next few years. So by right now, it's already um, getting Parry pursue with Medicaid, okay, which is mind-boggling. Um, the amount of people that are actually helped by uh, uh, health assistance is much more valuable to the country than uh, interest expense, which is useless. But because of this misguided plan, we now interest expense is expected to be not only bigger than the healthcare, bigger than defense, bigger than uh, and just about the same size as Medicare, bigger than non-defense discretionary, and uh, probably about 60% of Social Security. So uh, if he continues on this path, we're going to have a problem. So within 10 years, the federal government will spend more on interest costs than it has historically spent on R&D, infrastructure, and education combined. That's not good. Infrastructure, education, and R&D uh, is what creates what our future will look like. Those are investments that we get a return on. This is an investment that we get no return, a negative return on. Uh, net interest costs will account for almost 40% of federal revenues by 2053. So, uh, Congressional Bu Budget Office released an updated budget and economic projections, which highlighted the nation's unsustainable fiscal outlook. One of the most important, significant findings from that report is the federal government's borrowing costs have increased rapidly over the past year and will grow through the next decade. Most notably, interest payments on the national debt were $475 billion in fiscal year 2022, the highest dollar amount ever. That's compliments of Powell. Interest costs grew, well, in fairness, Congress spent too much, but you, you know, again, you don't raise your cost of capital on yourself. It makes zero sense. What he could have done, which I said a year ago, is drain the balance sheet. If you want to take liquidity out of system, just unload the balance sheet more aggressively and keep interest rates at a reasonable level. Not at zero, but you know, at three, three and a half, and then just take down the balance sheet by a half of, you know, three, four, five hundred billion dollars uh, more quickly and more rapidly, that would have been the better way to do it. But um, he went in this direction. Interest costs grew 35% last year and are projected to grow another 35% this year. Relative to the size of the economy, interest costs in 2030 will reach 3.3% of gross domestic product, uh, exceeding the previous post-World War II high of 3.2%. Within 10 years, net interest costs will exceed the federal spending on crucial programs like Medicaid and defense. Spending for net interest will become the largest program in the federal budget within 30 years. The last time debt to GDP was at this level, 120% was uh, World War II in 1948. You can see it here. The Fed was smart enough to let inflation run above trend for the next few years to inflate it away, like every rational government around the world does. Within a handful of years, debt to GDP had collapsed from 120% down to 55% because they let the economy grow out of it, collapsed. Here, they're going to keep it up unless they pause quickly. Even my favorite country, other than the United States, Canada, understands this as they paused hikes yesterday. So they read their history books. The Bank of Canada just announced their pause on interest rate hikes today. This is what I posted on Twitter. Uh, apparently, their economic textbooks chronicle the lagged effect of policy, and they've decided to let it work through the system before unnecessarily killing millions of jobs. Hmm, maybe we should take a cue from Canada. They seem to be doing a lot of things right lately. So, Chair Powell needs to take pause, take a pause after one or two more 25 basis points max. 
the culprit supply shortages has been put to bed. Remaining components will follow. Patience is required. So here's the global supply chain pressure index. This is straight from, I believe, the New York Fed website is where I got it from. And you'll see here that what caused the inflation was this aberrational uh, supply chain problem, which came down shortly and then spiked back up because of semiconductors and everything else. And now it's completely collapsed below pre-pandemic levels. Now you just have to wait for the lagged effect. Don't keep adding fuel to the fire. Just sit and wait. You can always raise later if you have to. And as we stated in our podcast last month, the political heat would turn up on Powell to pause once the people in their district starting get started getting priced out of housing and losing their jobs. That's happening now. And here's Congresswoman Ayanna Presley explaining how Chairman Powell is targeting the most vulnerable in society with his policies. And you can read through how they are starting to frame the argument around the policies that Powell is taking and how it's targeted at specific people that are in, uh, disproportionately hurt by what he's doing. So listen to what Ayanna Presley says here. As the gentlewoman from Massachusetts, Ms. Presley, for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Chairman Powell, for joining us today and for your testimony. I'm going to focus my comments and my questions on the high costs that families in my district are seeing because of your interest rate hikes. Now, while the Fed has acknowledged that higher interest rates are not the primary driver for the slowdown in price increases, you continue to raise interest rates, risking not only millions of jobs, but also a recession. Based on projections from the Fed, approximately 2 million people will lose their jobs. So that's 2 million families who will struggle to put food on the table, keep a roof over their heads, and to make ends meet. But the economic hardship does not end there. Mr. Chair, I would like to request uh, unanimous consent to submit a recent paper by the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland titled Post-COVID Inflation Dynamics into the record. Without objection. Chairman Powell, are you familiar with this publication, uh, yes or no? Uh, no, I'm not. Okay. Um, well, let me give you some context. In this paper, the Fed's own economist predict that reaching the 2% inflation goal that you have set will be impossible without causing a recession and spiking the unemployment rate to 7.4%, which translates to millions of working people losing their jobs. Now, Chairman Powell, many economists agree with me when I say that engineering a recession to bring inflation under control is not the right strategy, especially at a time when we are seeing inflation cool in real time, independent of your rate hikes. So on behalf of the people of this country, to prevent a recession, yes or no, Chairman Powell, will you pause future interest rate hikes? We're not seeking to, uh, to have a recession, and we don't think we need to have a recession to get Respectfully, back. will you pause interest rate hikes, yes or no? I don't do yes or no on will I pause interest rate hikes. Yeah, that's, a, that's a serious question. Um, I, and I can't tell oh. you because I don't know all the facts. I, you know, that's not a problem. my time. And in fact, it is a very serious question because it has a very serious implications. The people who will bear the brunt of an economic recession uh, are our most vulnerable. 
We know from past experiences that recessions have catastrophic and deeply inequitable consequences. In fact, while some will catch a cold, others will catch pneumonia. But you know that. An economic cold or pneumonia. In fact, in your opening statement, you said, we will stay the course until the job is done. To conclude, we understand that our actions affect communities, families, and businesses across the country. Could you elaborate um, what is this effect to communities, families, and businesses, these interest rate hikes? Well, um, right now we're, we're trying to bring down inflation on behalf of all those families. Uh, I think high inflation is hurting, particularly working families all around the country, very badly. And as you know, uh, if, you're, if you're on a very limited budget and you don't have a lot of excess earnings, when prices start going up, you're in trouble right away. People, up middle and upper middle class people have more resources. So we think it's absolutely critical for the working people of this country that we get inflation back under control. And also, while, while we're at it, we have a dual mandate. Apologies, Mr. Chair, I'm just reclaiming my time here. Here's the thing. The most devastating impacts will be to our most vulnerable. Veterans to our most vulnerable. Veterans, the elderly, low-income workers, black and brown workers, those who have often ignored and been neglected in the name of what you refer to as appropriate monetary policy. And yet, you assert that you will stay the course. It's, it's unconscionable, and our most vulnerable workers and families cannot afford to wait for you to realize the harm that you were doing. In my opinion, this sounds more like uh, the assertions of a greedy corporation uh, than someone who has a public mission on behalf of the people of this country. Uh, so uh, one more uh, question uh, with my remaining time here. Uh, Chairman Powell, another consequence of your interest rate hikes has been the increase of the average 30-year fixed mortgage rate to 6.6%, double of what it was two years ago. Do you see this widening inequity in the housing market as a problem? And what steps will you take to make housing more affordable? This is putting a home ownership further and further out of reach uh, for my constituents, new parents, parents, millennials, people of color, uh, contributing to inequities and the racial wealth gap. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, uh, our policies do Gentlemen, affect- Gentlemen, time's expired. Chairs can submit for the record or answer and we're back. So you get a sense of where this is going to go. If you remember a month ago when I said this was going to start happening, I said it was going to be Senator Warren and uh, uh, and uh, Congresswoman Pelosi. Uh, instead, it's Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and Senator Warren. And here's Senator Warren. And if you think this is just theater, this is just the warning shot. This is just beginning. And if you think political pressure doesn't matter to a Fed, you just wait and see. You saw how quickly he had to buckle in 2018 after he made his first mistake, and we'll see him buckling soon after he's now made his second mistake. So listen to Senator Warren here. So the Fed has raised interest rates eight times over the last year in what has been the most extreme rate hike cycle in 40 years. The Fed's goal is to slow inflation, and your tool, raising interest rates, is designed to slow the economy and throw people out of work. So far, you haven't tipped the economy into recession, but you haven't brought inflation entirely under control either. 
And maybe the reason for that is that other things are also keeping prices high, things you can't fix with high interest rates, things like price gouging and supply chain kinks and a war in Ukraine. But you are determined to continue to raise interest rates, so I want to take a look at where you're headed. In December, the Fed released its projections on the state of the economy under your monetary policy plan. According to the Fed's own report, if you continue raising interest rates as you plan, unemployment will be 4.6% by the end of the year, more than a full point higher than it is today. Chair Powell, if you hit your projections, do you know how many people who are currently working, going about their lives, will lose their jobs? I don't, uh, I don't have that number in front of me. I will say it's, it's not, it's it's not just an intended consequence. It's well, not but it is, and it's in your report, and that would be about 2 million people who would lose their jobs, people who are working right now making their mortgages. So, Chair Powell, if you could speak directly to the 2 million hardworking people who have decent jobs today, who you're planning to get fired over the next year, what would you say to them? How would you explain your view that they need to lose their jobs? I would explain to people more broadly that, that inflation is extremely high and it's hurting the working people of this country badly, all of them, not just two million of them, but all of them are suffering under high inflation and we are taking the, the only measures we have to bring inflation down. And putting two million people out of work is just part of the cost and they just have to bear it? Will, they, will, will working people be better off if, if we just walk away from our jobs and, and inflation remains well, 5 let 6 me, percent? Let me ask you about what happens if you do this. Since the end of World War II, there have been 12 times in which the unemployment rate has increased by one percentage point within one year, exactly what you're aiming to do right now. How many of those times did the U.S. economy avoid falling into a recession? You know, it's it's not as black and white as it very just very looking at the numbers. It actually yeah, no, is no. pretty black. Alan Blinder's written a book on this. And, there have and, been twelve times that yeah. we've seen a one point increase in the in the unemployment rate in a year. That's exactly what your Fed report has put out as the projection and the plan based on how you're going to keep raising these interest rates. How many times did the economy fail? to fall into a recession after doing that, out of 12 times. I think the number is zero. I think the number is zero. That's exactly right. So then the question becomes, we've got 2 million people out of work. Can you stop it at 2 million people? Um, history suggests that the Fed has a terrible track record of containing modest increases in the unemployment rate. Once the economy starts shedding jobs, it's kind of like a runaway train. It is really hard to stop. In fact, in 11 out of the 12 times that the unemployment rate increased by a full percentage point within one year, unemployment went on to rise another full percentage point on top of that. If that's what happens this time, we'd be looking at at least 3.5 million people who would lose their jobs. So, Chair Powell, if you reach your goal and 2 million people get laid off by the end of this year, and then, just like in 11 out of 12 times that unemployment has risen by a point in a single year, it keeps on rising, 
And then we've got two and a half million people out of work. We've got three million people who get laid off. We've got three and a half million people who get laid off. What's your plan? Well, right now the unemployment rate is 3.4%, which is the lowest in 54 years. And we actually don't think that we need to see a sharp or enormous increase in unemployment to get inflation under control. I, I'm looking at your projections. Do you call two, laying off two million people this year not a sharp increase in I unemployment? Four and a half. Explain that to the two million families who are going to be out of work. We're not. Again, we're not targeting any of that. We're, but I would say even four and a half percent unemployment is is well better than than most of the time for the last you know, 75 years. In other words, you don't have a plan to stop a runaway train if it occurs. You know, Chair Powell, you are gambling with people's lives. And there's a pile of data showing that price gouging and supply chain kinks and the war in Ukraine are driving up prices. You cling to the idea that there's only one solution, lay off millions of workers. We need a Fed that will fight for families. And if you're not going to lead that charge, we need someone at the Fed who will. And we're back. So despite Powell's risk of overdoing it and having to reverse course, not our base case, we remain constructive on high quality businesses that have been temporarily marked down. I joined Charles Payne on Fox Business on Friday to discuss two such businesses. Uh, you can listen to that. We went through that one last week. We did some aggressive myth busting with Rochelle. We listened to that and we listened to Cheryl also earlier in the call. Uh, some key points from the testimony. Um, we covered a few of them. I just want to cover here. He did acknowledge that the heaviest weight in CPI is starting to collapse. Uh, measures of new housing leases being signed showed significant declines in inflation. This is key because that's, I think, 60% of CPI. Hopefully it comes through, I mean, as early as this report. We were counting on May, June, July, but um, hopefully he'll start to get some indications. If he's saying this, that's going to have an impact on headline inflation, and hopefully by Tuesday, so this 50 can come off the table and then we're just talking about one or two more 25s and that's when the dollar is going to uh, start to soften again and that's when emerging markets are going to go through the roof. Now, um, AAII sentiment indicator. This is important. Didn't get to cover it on the show. We ran out of time. 52-week rolling average where bulls are greater than bears for the AAII sentiment. Uh, there was only three instances last year where the bulls were greater than the bears. And um, the average return when this indicator bottoms below 20 and starts to turn up, okay, you can see there have been five instances since 1990. The average return for the next uh, rally to peak is 109%. So this happened in 1990, 1994, 2002, 2009, and 2020. Uh, and here we are, we started to turn up. We bottomed in December, started to turn up, which you know, on average, um, the next rally to peak is 109%. That may take a few years, but it bodes to positive things. Nothing is perfect. And thanks to Alan for uh, sending this in, one of our listeners. Also, there's another indicator since 1960, every time the S&P closed above its 10-month moving average for two consecutive months in a row, after the market had corrected at least 20%, it marked a new bull market. Well, what does that mean? It means we corrected 25% last year peak to trough. And in January and February, the S&P closed above its 10-month moving average, which means a new bull market was declared, if this holds. Well, how many times has it held? Well, since 1960, 63 years, it's happened 14 times. 
and every single time 100% had meant marked a new bull market. We'll see if this is going to be 15 out of 15. Um, we talked a little bit about Amazon. We didn't get to talk, but we talked earlier. Now, this is funny. From uninvestable to unavoidable, if you remember the firm that put out the uninvestable note about China was JP Morgan. Now they're saying you got to get back in. So listen to Gabriella here. We're back from uninvestable to unavoidable. That is how my next guest is describing the opportunity in China, saying it's time to lean into the growth upturn. Joining me here, Post 9 to explain, Gabriela Santos of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Nice to see you back. Nice to see you, Scott. So that's a big statement, uninvestable to unavoidable. Have we really gotten there? So I think for the past two years, uninvestable had become a bit of a buzzword. We're talking about China. We had a 60% correction in the equity market. Interest rate differentials uh, started to turn in the U.S. favor. So really, the, the rewards weren't worth the risk of thinking about a China strategy. And if anything, there was a bit of a liability in having a, a China line item in, in, a, in a statement. Mm -hmm. I think this year, with the 60% rally we've seen off the October lows and with this massive growth upswing that we're expecting in China's economy and earnings, it's unavoidable to at least have a strategy about China. Whether ultimately that is investing directly in China, as we would argue, we would be overweight Chinese equities, or whether it's playing that story indirectly through Southeast Asia or certain European companies, you've got to have a strategy. A better. And we're back. So sentiment is returning to Chinese equities as the reopening numbers continue to exceed expectations. So when will the equities take their next leg higher? As we've covered in the past, when the dollar stops going up, uh, the counter trend rally stops and the weakness resumes. So here's the U.S. dollar as it was going up. Chinese equities, I have here BABA in the background, which is the heaviest weight or one of them. We're going down. And what do you know? Miraculously, when the dollar stopped going up, you had a 100% rally off the lows within a matter of months. Now what's happened? The dollar's gone back up in the, since February. Why? Because the data got better and everyone was worried. Now the Fed is going to be longer, which if the Fed is going to be more hawkish, the dollar's going to get strong in the short term. And what happened to emerging markets in BABA is it went back down. Now, I have actually... Let me let me just handle this AMA question right now. This is from Jake Hartman. He said, good morning, Tom. I'm interested in your updated opinion on the state of BABA. Any revisions to where the bottom could be from your original mid-90s thought? Any speculation on how long it might take to see this downtrend reverse? It seems that even with the stellar earnings and China opening, that Chinese stocks tank in the face of good news. Political issues have to be playing a part here. No? I don't know. Is this a political issue? This is a policy issue. Okay. Now, if this was just Chinese stocks, let's take a look. Well, it must be, it must be the balloons in the air that got shot down, or the TikTok ban, or the semiconductor ban, or they're going to bomb Taiwan, right? Well, if that's going to happen, then why are all the emerging markets doing the exact same thing that Chinese stocks and Alibaba are doing when they're now, you know, 30 some odd percent, 70 percent is not China. And it's doing the exact same thing. The dollar strengthened, emerging markets collapsed. It has nothing to do with Alibaba, has nothing to do with China. It's purely a currency trade. OK, and that is going to change soon. So 
we had, look, even if he does 50 and 25 and 25, which is the worst case scenario, which would be captain stupidity, um, it's still going to be done. We know where the finish line is. It's by the summer, whether that terminal rate is 540, 565, 6, okay, like all the crazy people. Could be. But um, the end of the day, this is a counter trend rally. This stops going up, we're going to have rip higher. And in this next rip higher, because everything about the fundamentals of the business and about China and about the reopening has gotten better. And I'm telling you, on this next rally, and I love that I'm getting these nervous emails. And by the way, on new money, it's still the top position in the portfolio. We put new money to work this week, and it's it's our biggest position in both portfolios. And uh, they just got lucky. And um, I hope before we finish it off, we'll get lower prices. But um, anyway, for, for all of you technical people out there, because this has nothing to do with the business or the fundamentals, those are getting better, just like they have, by the way, from 2014 to now. But uh, this is what they call a reverse head and shoulders. So shoulder, head, shoulder. And usually the expected price target for the measured move is the distance between the shoulder and the head. So 58 to 120 is about $63. You add it onto the shoulder. So that takes you to 180. And as I said uh, in recent weeks, when this makes its next move, it's not going to stop at 120 again. So all the people, so what happened is this, this thing ripped 100%. No one believed it. Everyone bought it at 120. They've gotten smoked. Okay. Uh, so now the next move is going to be to 120. No one's going to buy it and believe it. They're all going to be selling at 120. Uh, if they still own it, uh, they're going to be selling when they get back to even. And this thing's going to rip. And I said to 140 to 160, it could rip to 180 before it takes its next consolidation to take out the next group of weak sisters. But the ones that buy at 180 and then they shake them back off to 150. But, um, you watch what happens to this on the next move up. So I pray it gets down to 80. I don't think it will, but, it could. I mean, who cares? I, we might we might be there now for all we know. I, I have no idea. But the point is that this is the same exact chart as emerging markets, as BABA, as everything else. It just is an inverse trade to the dollar. And the dollar is just a function of Powell's rhetoric and the data that comes in. So uh, tomorrow could change it with the jobs report. Tuesday could change it with the CPI if what he's saying about the uh, leases is what we've been saying, and it actually shows up in the data this early, earlier than we expect. That would be very, very good. And this goes down, and then these are going to rip, and they're going to rip so aggressively, and they're not going to let anyone in. Just like the first 100% move didn't let anyone in, they all bought at 120. They got their faces ripped off down to 80. The next move is going to be to 140, 160, maybe 180. No one's going to let in. They're all going to buy at 180, and then they rip them back down to 150 before we go for the final, final huge move. So uh, nothing has changed in my view. If you're nervous, get out. I'll buy it from you. Uh, happy to do it. And, uh, and that's that. Now, the, uh, so this has everything to do when Powell's done. I can't make it any clearer. Just like I put out that tweet in October on that flush day when we were buying at $61, uh, our last buy, um, we put out that 18 point tweet on Twitter and we just showed this chart, the dollar, this is a dollar trade. We believe the dollar is going to stop going up. It did. And then boom, we we're off to the races within the next three months. Normal consolidation. We expected a few points more than we expected. Who cares? It's a rounding error. The key is this stops going up and this will rip. 
So are you going to hold it against me if it go instead of going to 140, 160 overnight, it goes to 165? I'm not going to get nasty tweets when it goes $5 over our next target. Uh, so, you know, grow up is what I have to say. Like, come on. Um, but if there wasn't that emotionalism, we wouldn't have these opportunities. So we have to thank, thank people like that. Uh, okay, so you saw the first taste above from Warren and Presley. Uh, oh, okay. The political pressure is building ahead of next year's election. Don't forget the power of that. You saw the first taste above from Warren and Presley. Note that these groups are the ones with the most to lose. If they lose control, if they get a recession, if a recession starts this year and carries into the next year, they're toast. So they want him to stop raising uh, as well. And next they'll be calling for his job. So when she's complaining about the 2 million jobs lost, she's going to make sure one of those 2 million is his job if he doesn't get religion from Canada, of all places, and make the right decision like the Bank of Canada has uh, this week. Now, on to the shorter-term view for the general market. Uh, retail investors and traders are shaking in their boots. Bullish percent was only 24. Bearish was 41. Fear and greed is neutral. And um, National Association of Active Investment Managers, uh, they got shaken out. So that's good. Uh, earnings, top 30 weights. Uh, George put this up of tech. Uh, was revised down by 14 basis points in the last 60 days, so they're not going down. And 2024 earnings, top 30 weights attack, revised up by 15 basis points for next year. And this is what I'm saying. Things are actually starting to turn up sooner than expected in terms of expectation. Communication services, similar story, down 1.5%, 1.8%. Again, considering how much these are down, they collapsed in the in last quarter, and their earnings are only down 1%. We like this. Um, and you can see them company by company here. All right, couple other things. This was the, wanted to show you the data from today. Look at the continuing claims. Much worse than expected. This is going to give, the thing, you know, in fairness, Powell does need some cover. Like if he stops hiking, he has to have a reason and he can point to now like continuing claims. Initial jobless claims come in much worse than expected. They were expected at 195. They were 190 last time. They came in at 211. So he's going to need, you know, a couple of these things to like ease it down. He can't just pause and then it spikes back up and he looks like an idiot. He's got to say, well, this and this and this was there, but it didn't hold. So now we're going back. That's, that's fair. But if he just did it like, well, I was predicting that it was going to come down, then he's, he's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. So I have some empathy for him. Uh, uh, but I think he's going to get what he needs to have cover shortly, and he's going to hopefully then follow through with the correct actions. But look at earnings here. They came down, all right, they were at 250 for a while, you know, basically since uh, for three months, and then they came down a little bit, and now they're starting to trend back up. Same thing with 2023 earnings. They're starting to trend back up towards 250. That's pretty exciting to see. I expected to see that in second quarter. I thought the trend... They'd slowly creep down, creep down. Everyone would say, earnings are going down, therefore the market can't go up. I was hoping for more of that. But earnings are starting to go up, and that, that's a good thing. So um, a friendly reminder, the emerging markets chart here, guys, exact same thing. It's just a dollar trade. It has nothing to do with all the noisy headlines about guide rails and confrontation and all that BS. Like, yeah, we pay attention to it, but it's a dollar trade. That's all it comes down to. Um, all right, let's get to the other questions and then wrap it up. Aaron L. Small-time retail investor from the Midwest. Enjoy watching your weekly 
videocast, podcast, learn a ton every week, made some money on CPS, thank you. Unfortunately, I have a habit of selling too early. It's hard to resist the temptation to protect gains, but I'm working on it. I'm interested in your thoughts on Tyson Foods, which operates four segments. Beef, chicken, da 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 Stock may not be hated enough for you to move on it, haha, but its PE is only 10.6. Also has a nice dividend history. All right, so um, let's take a look. I found these meat makers. By the way, he put a bunch more other stuff, but we don't have time for that. Um, I read it. Let's see. TSN. Let's take a look. Tyson. By the way, if you don't like sticking around for the um, ask me anything questions, thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. But uh, if you do get value out of this part, which I think a lot of you do, then it's just going to go a little longer. So bear with me here. Um, I got to get out to Connecticut too, so don't worry. Uh, all right, this out, out to um, Yukon. Excited for that swim meet. All right. Um, let's take a look here. TSN. Right, so let's look at some of the data. As always, this is opinion, not advice. Click on terms, talk to your financial advisor. I don't know your situation. I deal exclusively with accredited investors and qualified institutions. Uh, okay, so revenues have been growing from 36 to 53 billion in the last six or seven years. EBITDA has been growing. Net income. What's the balance sheet look like? So a lot of companies that have levered balance sheets right now are selling off because they think rates are going to go up forever and the credit markets are going to stay closed. But you're seeing junk, junk issuance pick up massively this year. Not massively, but pick up. Go through the what I'm reading today section and uh, the image is on one of those pages. Uh, cash flow from, oh, this is a uh, balance sheet. Let's see. Long-term debt came down a little bit over the last few years, so they've paid down about $3 billion, so that's good. How much cash do they have? Uh, cash has come down a billion. All right, so it's probably trading down partially because of the balance sheet, but it's, it's not terrible. Let's see the cash flow. Cash from operations has been declining, so... Um, Yeah, so negative free cash flow last year. So that, you got to take a look at where that is from. Still not a bad business. I mean, I think this is worth a, uh, a longer look. So first thing that I would do, Aaron, is um, go, go listen to the last four conference calls and investor presentations and 
start to try to find out what is the bear case on this. Um, certainly input costs and everything else. As a matter of fact, you may have mentioned a few of them, but that's not the purpose of the AMA. We just want to make a quick determination if it's worth doing more work. Um, yeah, input costs. By the way, all of the grains are coming down. So we're bearish on commodities and as it relates to the grains. So that will help margins over the next couple of years. So this one's definitely worth a, um, a, a, a stronger look. As a matter of fact, I think we have it in the trade service. But in terms of a long-term investment to make a double or something, um, and you might be right, we might have made a determination that while this thing could appreciate a lot, we don't, we don't know that it could be a double within the next 12 to 36 months, and therefore the IRR wasn't high enough. But I do think this is a decent uh, company to, to pursue further, and uh, good work. Uh, Bryce Schoenfelder. Hey, Tom, question. What's the lowest round you're going to shoot this summer? Um, we're going to um, some super-duper championship in Orlando in March. So one of those days, I'm going to go down to Miami and take a half-day lesson with this guy named Andy Plummer who wrote the book uh, Stack and Tilt, which is the, the swing that I use. And he trains all of the, a lot of the, PGA pros, uh, the playing pros, not the teaching pros, and uh, he's good friends with the pro from my club um, who originally taught me stack and tilt. So my putting is on fire, um, and my friend actually had me over to his house. He's got the simulator, and we worked on ball spin, and my driver is launching now. Uh, we did like 40 things. My average was 293. And it was nowhere close when I went there. So I'm not taking any credit for it. Um, he made me put it up further in my stance and tee it up higher because it takes the spin off of it. And when you take the spin off of it, um, you get much more distance. So the driver and the putter are working. Uh, the irons I've been working on. So I think I can break 80 this year. I mean, that would be not bad because I only came back last year was my first full season. Um, and I was limited on the days I could play because there was like a waiting list and all this other stuff. Now I've got full tilt. So like four o'clock hits, the markets are closed. Girls go to swimming practice. I go, I go play nine. Uh, I think I'll break, I think I'll break 80 at least once this year, hopefully more than that. Uh, but it's going to be work. It's not a slam dunk. Um, all right. Number two, using the Alibaba example, you mentioned that oftentimes stocks don't stop going down on good news but rather stop going down on less bad news. All right, you're overthinking this. This is just a dollar trade. Next, Tom Corbett. Um, okay. Hi, Tom. Hope you're well. Was hoping you could take a look at a stock I've recently found. Some interesting research on consolidated communication holdings, CNSL. Okay, so let's pull this guy up. CNSL. What do they do again? They, okay. Oh, this is the last AMA, by the way. Uh, Copper-based telecommunication companies that provides broadband and business communication solutions for the consumer, commercial and carrier channels in the US. 
Okay, so they got 250 million. So it's a levered balance sheet, like all these cable companies. It's trading like it's going bankrupt. Uh, on the looks of it, that's a good starting point. But let's just see if the business is decent. CNSL. All right, so cash flow from operations has been deteriorating. Free cash flow has been negative the last two years. Uh, gross profit margin has been declining since 2015. Revenues were going up. Now they started coming down. Return on capital has started to flatline since 2018. Uh, return on equity has been negative for the last five years. Um, these are some red flags, my friend. CNSL. I like the idea. I think this one's going to be a pass. It's not a good enough business. It's not like, oh, when we get through this, cable subscriptions are going to double because half the people shut off their cable because of COVID. It's not like the car business. It's, it's, uh, It's, um, so the revenues peaked at 1.4, they're now down to 1.1, negative EBITDA, negative, 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 just consistently negative. I mean, the most you got here, my friend, I think is a trade, just because it's so oversold, it'll bounce. Cash from operations is declined from 364 down to 223. Now, his argument, Free cash flow is like seriously negative the last three years. So his argument is that the areas that they service, they kind of have a monopoly or a duopoly, which is fine. Um, you know, you could dig into it a little more, like listen to the last three calls and listen to management pitches. Why, why is this ever going to change? I'd be more interested if I saw them started to buy some stock, um, if management did. But for now, I'd listen in, see if there's a plan to turn this thing around and see if there's any evidence that it's happening. But beyond that, I'd, I'd probably just take a pass, even though it could work. Uh, I think this one, I'm not that, I'm not that interested in. Um, and that, again, that doesn't mean it will work. You have to do more work. Maybe you'll find something. And by the way, send back a question. Say, hey, listen, here's the investor presentation. Uh, you know, this is why they're negative free cash flow. This is why it's going to change. Then it, then it becomes a different story. But for now, it's just a pass. It's, it's much easier. Errors of omission are acceptable. Errors of commission are not. And this would be an error of commission because all the seg signals are negative at the moment. So with that said, thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll see you back next week, same time, same place. In the meantime, make it a great one. Bye for now.